This is the 15th in this series of uh, talks that we've had, aimed principally at the business community, but uh, for the first time we're opening it up more for a more general uh, community, and we've changed the name of the uh, series, as those of you who have been to previous ones will know. We used to call it just straight in a nutshell, and now it's um, research uh, at Said. Oxford at Said, uh, research in a nutshell. Uh, we've got a particularly interesting subject this <coughs> evening, very topical, as I'm unfortunate in some ways, um, business history, the les lessons we can learn from it. Two talks we've got on the current state of, uh, of play, and one which we look back really quite a long way to uh, 180 uh, BC to 300 AD for our second talk. Um, the speakers are going to talk for about 20-25 minutes each. If you've got pressing questions after them, we can take just one or two then, but I think it would be much better if we have a panel discussion at the end with all three speakers on the stage. Uh, you will all have seen the notices of, uh, of the speakers um, on your, the leaflet here, so I won't go through all the details. We're going to start off with Alan Morrison who will be talking on the history of investment banks. We'll then move on to Alan Bowman, who will talk about the one I've just made reference to in Rome, uh, Boom and Bust in Ancient Rome. And then Chris McKenna will talk about the history of, of white-collar crime. So I think we're in for a good evening. Uh, and I will now hand over to uh, Alan for the first talk. Thank you. Um, I feel like a bit of a fraud. I'm the only speaker this, this afternoon who's not a professional historian. I'm an economist who works on banks, and um, I've done quite a lot of work with a guy called Bill Wilhelm at the University of Virginia on investment banks and the history of investment banks, um, and that's what I'm going to draw upon this evening. So uh, what I thought I would do is talk about um, what investment banks originally did, where they came from, why they're economically useful, why, if you like, one would have invented them if they didn't already exist. Then I'll talk about some changes just of the last 25 to 30 years in the investment banking landscape that have resulted in um, certainly a change in the way that investment banks operate and in the way that they're organized, and that have changed the incentives that investment bankers face. And um, then I'm going to speculate very briefly about whether that has anything at all to do with the crisis that we're currently um, still slogging through. So... <clears throat> Investment banks are, it's hard to identify the point where investment banks first appeared, but you can identify their antecedents in the trade um, across the Atlantic um, of the uh, 18th and early 19th centuries. So trade in um, raw commodities that were taken, mostly cotton, from the United States to Britain for manufacture, and then manufactured goods returning to the United States. And, um, and that's an interesting trade for all sorts of social reasons, but it's also economically very interesting because it's a very complicated trade, um, it took place um, against a backdrop of laws and communication technologies that were incredibly primitive um, for this purpose. So, for example, um, if you wrote a contract um, across the Atlantic between a British merchant and an American, um, an American uh, counterpart, it might be impossible to enforce it. There was virtually no international law. The laws that existed had been developed for entirely agrarian societies. So, if a mercantile dispute came to court, juries were liable to make very arbitrary decisions based basically upon what they thought was fair rather than what had been contracted upon. Um, so there was very little in the way of 
straightforward commercial law for this sort of transatlantic trade. And there's also incredibly poor communication. Um, information crossed the Atlantic at the speed that a boat could travel, and certainly in the 18th century that was fairly slow, and boats didn't, ha didn't travel all the time. So one could never be quite sure how long information would take to arrive. So a trader in, the, in Britain trying to buy cotton might want to establish the quality of the cotton, but in order to do this before purchasing, the trader would have to wait for somebody to examine the cotton, get in a boat, come back, tell him, return, and then buy the cotton. And that was too slow. So there was a need for trust for these substantial transatlantic trades because it was impossible to base them upon straightforward law. There's also a vast amount of delegation. People trading out of London and Liverpool um, had representatives over in the United States working for them over whom they had very little actual legally enforceable um, power. And um, those people were usually family members for that reason. And the sorts of contracts that people wrote were essentially oral. Because you couldn't trust the courts to enforce the contracts you'd written, the contracts that were people wrote were very informal. They weren't contracts in the legal sense at all. Um, two people would make an agreement about what they wanted to happen. And um, you know, they would both keep to the agreement because the consequences in terms of um, lost trade or lost reputation of failing to keep promises were fairly substantial. So the sorts of contracts you could written were limited by the types of things that could be enforced by this sort of repeated trade mechanism. But the so-called private law, extra-legal enforcement devices, and institutions that surrounded those were absolutely critical for this trade to develop at all. And it worked because people had long-term relationships and reputation was very important. I would pay rather more to deal with someone I could trust to um, keep his word because that person relied upon his word for his business flow than I would pay to deal with someone I didn't know. In fact, I would probably be unprepared to deal with someone um, of whom I knew virtually nothing. So relationships were important and reputation was important. And in that context, long-lived traders or traders whose trading houses lived for a long time became very important because they could underwrite this type of um, contract. So when one looks at the contracts that were written in cotton trade, they were very, very general and rather vague and it was tacitly understood what they meant and the penalty for breaking a contract was loss of reputation and probably loss of a great deal of business. But certainly in the 18th century, the penalties weren't much greater. So at this time, we see the Rothschilds emerge. Um, they never really cracked America because no Rothschild was ever prepared to go and live in the United States um, because they had such a nice life in Europe. So that's the main reason Rothschild never became a major force in the United States. Bearings were probably the most important bank right the way through the 19th century before they had their first failure at the end of the 19th century over Argentinian trade. But they started out in the commodity import-export business in 1763. The Brown brothers who morphed ultimately into Bankers Trust and are now part of bank, um, Deutsche Bank, um, started out in the 1790s in the linen trade. Peabody, which ultimately became J.P. Morgan, started in 1814 in dry goods. These people were not financiers. These people were trading hard commodities or soft commodities, non-perishable commodities, most often linen, often the cotton trade. And they were trading, they were successful because they had a reputational capital, and it's my argument and Bill's argument, is they were successful because they were basing their activities upon reputational capital that was very hard to create. So this gave you a barrier to entry. You couldn't acquire a reputation in a shop, and that allowed them to make substantial profits. And because they had substantial profits to lose, they could be trusted to protect their reputation. Well, they got into finance during the 19th century for two reasons. Firstly, finance became important. And secondly, technology changed. Changes in technology have kind of changed investment banking repeatedly over time, and I'm going to argue that the most recent changes in technology have had fairly substantial effects upon investment banks. 
So commercial law and contract law began to support the trade in goods more explicitly. Technology has improved. So in 1817, we started to see regular steamships crossing the Atlantic. Information traveled far more quickly when this happened. In 1866, the transatlantic cable opened. So suddenly, you didn't have to wait for someone to arrive on a boat or for a letter to arrive on a boat to find out the quality of cotton. At a very high price, you could find out immediately by waiting for telegraph information to cross the Atlantic. And suddenly, the information, the advantage that Bearings and Rothschilds and all those guys had in the cotton trade, because they could, you know, one could trust them to do the, do the right thing and one didn't need to examine goods, this, this, um, this evaporated almost overnight in 1866. Um, I'm not sure if I've put it on the slide. I don't think I have. Brown Brothers bought their last boat, it was a steamboat, in 1870. The investment was a total disaster and they sold it off almost immediately. Um, because they could no longer leverage their reputation to make superior profits in just the transportation of goods. It became a whole lot easier, in other words, because of standardized technologies and better laws, better designed laws and better designed legal institutions for individuals engaged in transatlantic trade to communicate with one another. Contracting became easier to, to do and all sorts of new people entered the market um, for trading goods. So people who've been making their money out of enforcing reputational contracts and um, underpinning very complex um, agreements that could not easily be written down in a contract could no longer leverage from their ability to do that in the market for straightforward commodities. It's still the case, however, that finance was incredibly complicated. It was hard to enforce financial contracts. In the middle of the 19th century, it was illegal to write a, a forward contract, for example, um, on the New York Stock Exchange. People still wrote them, but they couldn't rely upon the courts to enforce them. And um, finance then, as now, was an information-based business. If you wanted to lend money to a cotton grower in the south of the United States, you had to know something about the cotton grower's business. And this was something that um, the transatlantic traders, the big transatlantic traders like Bearings, Rothschilds, and Brown Brothers, Harriman, um, had in abundance. <coughs> because they were long-lived institutions, and because they had very strong reputations, um, and I've only got 20 minutes, so I can't show you much data, but the story is, they were able to make just about as much, in fact, they were able to make rather more from financing trade as they were from actually sailing the boats across the Atlantic. A critical missing link um, in terms of legal institutions was not in trade, it was in financing trade, um, deciding who was trustworthy and um, monitoring the performance of borrowers. And the investment banks started moving sideways, or the, the institutions that became investment banks, started moving sideways um, from trading dry goods to trade in um, money, to finance. So Brown Brothers made most of their, made their first big, big amounts of money trading foreign exchange which in those days was a complicated business um, that I contemplated explaining in a slide and decided not to. And um, that sets the scene for the first half of the 20th century. Investment banks behaved in almost uh, an oligopolistic fashion. It was incredibly hard to enter the investment banking world. At the end of the 19th century, the two biggest investment banks were J.P. Morgan and Kern Loeb um, in the United States, and, they, um, and then Bearings in the United Kingdom and probably Rothschild. And, Ross, and J.P. Morgan, in particular, was making spectacularly large amounts of money underwriting deals. Um, of course, this was a market in which competition was, was, was intense. Um, it wasn't as if there was any legal barrier to entry. You didn't need any capital to be an investment bank in those days. Um, and people have puzzled about why it was that nobody else entered the market and drove down J.P. Morgan's spectacular fees to something a bit closer to their marginal costs. And the answer seems to be that reputation was absolutely critical. 
You dealt with J.P. Morgan, you got someone who's certainly an expert, you got someone who had something precious to guard their reputation, and you could probably trust them to do the right thing. We know, for example, that in the late 19th century, having a J.P. Morgan member, a partner on your board, uh, made your stock, stock price jump dramatically. Now, maybe that was because they were going to collude with you and arrange for better finance, but it's generally believed that this was because they wouldn't even join your board unless they thought you were high quality. They couldn't potentially risk their reputation. So reputation management and the use of reputation to underpin very complex arrangements in finance and latterly complex arrangements in things like mergers and acquisitions was at the heart of what investment banks did for a long time. Um, and uh, we started to learn exactly how important it was in the first half of the last century. And in particular, during the last major financial crisis to shape the world. Um, in 19, here's a very famous um, incident from 1929. The Goldman Sachs Trading Corporation was an investment trust set up by Goldman Sachs in the late 1920s. And in a single month during the crash of 1929, the price of this investment trust dropped from $326 to $1.75. And this had been pushed very hard by Goldman Sachs. And their reputation took a major beating. Today, they're probably the most reputable, most highly regarded, and one of the most highly regarded investment banks of the lot. But their reputation was really damaged by this, and it probably took, a, it took at least two decades for the firm's reputation to recover from that. And they learned something important about investment banking from this experience. Um, one of their subsequent um, managing partners, a guy called Whitehead, wrote 14 commandments for the uh, so-called commandments. Goldman Sachs <coughs> needs more than 10. Um, you know, 14 commandments for uh, Goldman Sachs employees, telling them what Goldman Sachs was all about. And this, he thought, was the most important. He said, our assets are our people, our capital, and our reputation. And if any of these is ever damaged, the last is the most difficult to restore. So investment banks were very cognizant, especially after the crash of 1929, um, of how important reputation was to their business and how, without a reputation, they simply couldn't get underwriting business and all the other things that made them function. Not only that, if there is no trusted intermediary in the market, everybody suffers. If I have a smart idea and no capital, which is what happens in capitalism, I need someone with money to invest in me. And if nobody trusts me, and nobody trusts the intermediaries who are bringing me to market, my ideas never turn into projects, and the wealth that I could create never gets created. That's what happens in credit crunches. So in this work with Bill Wilhelm, we look at how investment banks are organized, and we say, well, you know, what has changed in the organization of investment banks? Well, for a long time, until 1970, in fact, investment banks and merchant banks were invariably organized either as partnerships or as private limited companies. They were never publicly owned. And they were always owned by their senior directors, so generally by partners. And um, we argue that the reason for this was that it was all about protecting reputation. There is always a temptation when you have a great reputation to run it down. Um, if I have a great reputation for writing derivatives trades, and I think this reputation is not going to last forever, why not use the reputation to puff some unsuspecting corporate with an overpriced derivative security, make loads of money now, and walk away without a reputation in the end because the reputation wasn't that important to me? And from there, it's a short step to saying, OK, I'm 65, I'm about to retire, why not do one big trade and run down my reputation, and um, I don't need it after now anyway. And, of course, if I'm going to do that when I'm 65, people stop trusting me when I'm about 60, and that means I'll do it when I'm 60, and eventually they never trust me at all. So something that makes me care about the long-lived reputation of my partnership is essential if I'm to do business. And partnerships do this. Partners, because they own the stock in the corporation, have their own well-being tied up in the reputation of the firm. Not only that, the only way you can cash out as a partner is to sell to the next generation of partners. 
So unless you're worried, so that means that the next generation of partners are going to buy the shares only if they think their reputation is secure, and that will make me, the senior investment banking partner, care greatly about the reputation of the investment bank far into the future. I care about the well-being of my heirs because only if they expect to be wealthy will they buy my shares from me. So this is a short description of two years' worth of research. Um, <laughs> but we have this story, and we have a lot of data that suggests this is precisely what was motivating investment bankers, and this is why they organized themselves as partnerships. And we have a lot of information about, for example, the terms on which you cashed out early. If you cashed out early, you did so at a, at a poor rate. Investment banks wouldn't for a long time poach one another's partners because they didn't want to, um, they didn't want to break this equilibrium where people stayed with one firm for a long time. So investment bankers who work in partnerships work incredibly hard to protect their, their reputations. Hence this statement of Whitehead, which was written back in the days when Goldman Sachs was a partnership, not long before it floated. The things seem to have changed. And I thought I'd finish just by talking about how investment banks have changed in the last 20 or 30 years. So this is a picture that um, Bill and I generated using data from New York Stock Exchange archives. And there are some striking things on this graph. This red line here is the capitalization of the top 10 investment banks by capitalization. These are in um, constant dollars, so inflation adjusted. So in 1955, the capitalization of the top 10 investment banks in uh, $2,000, in dollars with the year 2000's value, was $821 million. Not a great deal by today's standards. Fairly static until the early 1980s when it started to expand. So by 1980, it's $6.3 billion. By 2000, it was $194 billion. By 2005, it was a whole lot less, and right now we're back to about $200 billion. Um, so investment banking capitalization has shot up in the top investment banks. Moreover, this blue line shows the capitalization, the right-hand scale, shows the capitalization of investment banks 11 to 25 as a proportion of the capitalization of the top 10. And you can see that's dropping dramatically between 1955, dropping fairly steadily between 1955 and 2000. So in 1955, investment banks 11 to 25 were worth about 80% of investment banks 1 to 10. By 2000, that, was ten, that figure, that percentage had dropped to 10%. So investment banking became incredibly um, and, and has become more um, concentrated in the last 30 or 40 years. And the amount of capital you need to carry on an investment banking business has shot up. Now, the banks in 1955 didn't need a great deal of capital, but they needed reputation and they needed human skills. So they needed what an economist would call human capital. Economists in 2000 still needed human... Uh, economists, we don't need anything. Investment bankers, investment bankers um, still needed human capital, but they also needed financial capital to operate, and they needed a great deal of capital. And you can normalise this. You could take capital per managing director or capital per partner up to about 1970. All those ratios are shooting up. It just became a whole lot more financially costly to do this. Um, there's also some evidence that the capital you needed to underwrite a security was drifting up as well, although this chart is less obvious. But per dollar that was underwritten, more capital seemed to be needed. So Bill and I <coughs> embarked on this research. It took, us, it took us backwards. We started in 1970 and wound up in 1800 trying to understand what it was that, made, um, that, that caused this and whether this had any bearing on the organization of investment bankers. And we argue that what was happening in the 1960s onwards was really substantial technological change. And it took two forms. First of all, um, there were advances in, in finance, in financial economics, some of which, I suppose, are at the... Well, we may talk about this later. Some of those 
advances have perhaps caused problems in the uh, market for securitized subprime mortgages of late. But some of these advances were a great thing. Suddenly it was possible to run a great big complicated portfolio and to get some simple metrics based on computer programs to tell you how much risk you were taking, at least approximately, in ways it wasn't previously possible to do. Suddenly it was possible to analyze option technology and option pricing in ways that essentially you could run a computer and a mathematician to do rather than someone who simply employed his or her own judgment. And that had a big effect. First of all, it was good news for business schools. We can teach people these techniques and send them out into the world. When I started working in banking not that long ago, um, before I did my PhD, um, nobody had a training of finance before they went to their bank. They learned on the job because the sorts of skills you needed were the sorts of skills you could only learn on the job. So the nature of skill changed. And that happened in, um, in tandem with the change in the technology that underpinned this skill. There's no use having a complicated model for valuing a derivative unless you have the computer power to, to run the model. So computer power increased at the same time. And computer power didn't just affect the nature of skill that you needed to be a banker or to trade. It also affected the way that banks settled trades. So, for example, in 1960, every single Wall Street bank was settling every single trade by hand. They had massive back offices filling in bits of paper, sending them around, around, the, uh, around, the, around Wall Street. And it was a complicated and difficult job, and it went wrong a lot. In the late 1960s, um, the New York Stock Exchange was shut for half a day a week to allow people to catch up on backlogs. So the back office was getting out of hand. Every single one of the banks that folded in the 1970s was a bank that had failed to embrace computer technology in the back office in the 60s. So massive impetuses to use this technology. But it's the standard story. When you have computer technology, you need scale. In the 1960s, you needed scale because computers were expensive. So banks started merging so they had big enough back offices to get the economies of scale they needed from these big computers. In the 1980s, because the nature of trade had changed and because we could turn out hundreds of smart people who understood um, trade, um, it became possible just to trade a lot more. Banks could trade with less skill, less, well, they needed skill, but they needed a different type of skill. And they could trade far greater volumes and margins shrank. We can see margins shrinking in the interest rate swap market from 15 basis points to one basis point in the course of 15 years. And it meant that to make any money at all, you had to be very big and you had to have a great deal of capital at stake. So the scale and the capital requirements you needed for investment banking increased dramatically. And in some of the markets that sprang up in response to this technological change, the extra-legal contracting that investment banks have been doing since 1800 was just less important. You needed personal skills, you needed tacit knowledge, you needed to know how to sell to work in the derivatives market. But basically, what you really needed was a PhD in physics and a big computer. So the need for um, some of the things that investment banks have traditionally relied upon became less in some businesses. In other businesses like M&A and security underwriting, it remained very important. But there were new businesses arriving in investment banking, some of which substituted for traditional activities, in which reputation was less important and capital was incredibly important. And it became impossible to sustain the capital requirements you needed to do these new businesses in a partnership. There just wasn't... We have all sorts of technical, technical explanations, but there basically wasn't enough cash per partner to provide the capital needed to do this. And that's why the partners, partnership started to float. And Merrill Lynch was amongst the first to float. The last of them was gold. The last of them, you know, bulge bracket banks was Goldman Sachs. Arguably because at the time it floated, Goldman Sachs was mainly involved in the sort of relationship business where tacit skill was very important. Merrill Lynch had always been a high-volume um, customer business that, you know, could make a lot of traction out of computers. So partnerships floated, and because a partnership was a device for maintaining reputation, 
some of, the some of the incentives that had encouraged investment bankers to protect their reputation were attenuated. And we see lots and lots of examples of banks trying to replace these incentives through clever incentive contracts. So you make shares vest late, you give people partnership-style contracts, but nevertheless, these things can only be successful up to a point. Um, and I'm going to leave it... I'm, I'm not sure whether these changes meant that investment banks were less concerned about their reputation, but if they did, they may have contributed to what happened in the years after these banks floated, post-95. <coughs> well, if that's the case, um, what should we do? I, I'm... Like most academics, especially most academics who are sympathetic to free markets, I hesitate to rush to suggest legislation. But maybe we can get some, ways, some useful things to think about in this context. Reputation for hundreds of years, and still today, is right at the heart of extra-legal contracting. And that's the sort of contracting that investment banks traditionally specialise in. And loss of reputation doesn't just harm the investment banker, it harms the entire economy. As I said, entrepreneurs with good ideas who can't find finance are experiencing pain that is far, are causing pain far greater than just their own. So I think you can find examples of this outside investment banking. I think you can find it in the ratings industry. The ratings agencies have said in public that their reputations are very greatly damaged by what's happened in the last five years. Um, and they also acknowledge that this is causing pain because you can't float a bond very easily anymore. Previously, if you sold a bond, if you borrowed money, you would do so with a rubber stamp from a ratings agency to say this is a high-quality bond. And people would buy it because they trusted the ratings agency. So smart people with good ideas could get access to the capital market and do useful stuff with capital. Nowadays, smart people with useful ideas issue a bond, it gets a treble B rating, and no one believes it. And that makes it much harder to raise money. So reputational damage has substantial effects in the capital markets. And in commercial banking, it's probably contributed to the credit crunch. Everybody stopped lending to Northern Rock because they thought they were a basket case, and then they stopped lending to all the other building societies or ex-building societies, all the mortgage banks. turns out, actually, that most of them were basket cases, but not all of them, and arguably some of them became basket cases because they couldn't raise funds. So, um, could we fix things by forcing a return to the partnership form? I've seen this suggested um, in the newspapers. Or maybe we could um, prevent this reputational damage from arising or prevent reputational contagion from spreading from the securitization market the commercial market, commercial bank market, with something like Glass-Steagall, by separating utility banking from casino banking, as people tell us um, we should do. I don't know. Um, it would generate massive costs. Um, Cross-selling would be impossible. Some of the information that banks derive from their commercial banking business is incredibly useful in their investment banking business and vice versa. All of that information will be lost. And financial markets are really about propelling information around the economy and helping people to use it to, um, to raise funds and to allocate resources. So there might be substantial deadweight costs, and there'd be big operating costs, and that would be expensive. But this argument, I guess, if we want to draw any conclusions for today, does suggest something about future regulations. Um, when regulations substitute for bank regulation, bank reputation, banks have got less incentive to protect their reputations. So, for example, if I have a very close regulation of a credit rating agency, um, when the credit rating agency goes wrong, sure, its reputation suffers, but so does the reputation of the institution that said it was okay, that certified it, of the regulator. And if that's the case, the ratings agency can, to some extent, fall back upon the uh, certification that the state provides. Similarly, very, very close regulation of banks might undermine reputational incentives. So, 
if new regulation is coming, and I'm sure it is, um, we need to be very careful that regulations don't undermine incentives for reputation protection. Um, arguably, that's precisely what happened before the crisis in the credit ratings market, um, and it's extremely important that it doesn't happen in the future. So in 25 minutes, that's all I have to say. My name is Alan Bowman. As you can see, I'm a professor of Roman history in this university, interested in the social and economic history of the Roman Empire. I thought I might uh, tonight hide my um, credentials as a fully paid-up member of the uh, Society for Facile Historical Comparisons. Um, <laughs> but as you, as you will shortly see, I shall be talking about an infinitely more sophisticated society than the one that Alan just uh, analysed. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I thought I'd talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, what it is one's talking about when one uh, approaches an analysis of the Roman economy, of Roman economic behaviour. Uh, secondly, something about the structures. And thirdly, uh, something about behaviour. And I hope that perhaps something may emerge towards the end that is uh, relevant and perhaps might suggest some ways of thinking about economic behaviour uh, that isn't facile. Um, so what are we talking about when we talk about the Roman economy? Uh, not a trivial question. Um, it's a trivial question if I can't get this to move, however. There we are. Um, there are three ways uh, one might approach this, the Roman economy. Well, is it one thing? Uh, in what sense is it Roman? And in what sense is it an economy as opposed to some other kind of structure? And these, uh, for somebody looking at the um, history of economic behaviour in my period, are not trivial or facile questions. Uh, first of all, uh, to approach the question of uh, coherence both in time and space. As Joe mentioned earlier, the period about which I'll be talking tonight uh, runs from 100, roughly speaking 180, I said 180, but maybe 200 BC uh, down to AD 300. That's 500 years, a period during which there was a pretty fair degree of economic stability. And for a good proportion of that period, price stability too, uh, as we'll see. Uh, so there is a sense in which uh, searching for the unity or the coherence of one uh, entity is something that is worth thinking about. Uh, the second thing is, what sense is it Roman? Well, uh, a couple of nice old maps. Uh, this is what the Roman Empire looked like, according to our 19th century map makers, and it's not changed a lot. Um, <laughs> at the death of Caesar uh, in 44 uh, BC, date which is all familiar to you. And uh, this is what it looked like um, in the 3rd century AD at, at its greatest extent. So anybody who thinks that we're just focusing on Rome or Italy and Romans and Italians has got another thing coming. This is most of the Mediterranean world and most of Europe, uh, which is involved in this entity which we're talking about in terms of economic behaviour. So it is a huge uh, spread both in time and space. In what sense is it an economy? Well, um, oops. The, um, oh, that's the, right one. Uh, the question, of course, is uh, whether the economic aspects of this society that we're looking at are, are um, to be distinguished from other aspects of behaviour in society or whether they are inextricably uh, entwined with social behaviour and political behaviour in ways which make it very diffi difficult to isolate the characteristics of the ancient or the Roman economy. Uh, but to move on to um, 
thinking about some of these definitions uh, in advance of what we might say about the structures, we have to think about, on the basis of those um, uh, <coughs> earlier observations that I just made, we have to think about, first of all, regional diversity over this huge area, which was in some sense a single political system. It was ruled by uh, the Roman Republic, the Roman Senate, the SPQR, and later by Roman emperors in what was essentially a single political system, which from an economic point of view is very important because if you think about comparisons with the modern world, this was not a system which interfaced in any complex way with other similar political systems of equal power. That's not to say there weren't exports and trading links beyond the empire, but there were not comparisons um, or... or um, uh, contacts which put the Roman Empire into direct economic and political competition in the way in which you might think of it in more modern systems. Uh, there was a single coinage and a single currency system. Uh, that needs some um, glossing too because, of course, although the denarius is the ancient dollar uh, and did, of course, dominate the Mediterranean world uh, over the period that we're talking about, it came gradually to do so in the course of the period, it is also true that there were not competing but coexisting and complementary currencies all around these regions, particularly in the East, which retained their currencies for a long time and which were brought into relationship with the Roman denarius in uh, quite complex uh, valuations which uh, enabled uh, the different coinages to function under the umbrella of the, the denarius. Um, Integration of markets, moving goods around, of course, within this empire, achieved a degree of coherence which I should like to argue, I would argue if I had the time, uh, is, is really quite impressive, and I'll show you a few examples of the kind of thing that I'm talking about later. That, of course, leads to questions about what, what the stimuli were in um, affecting the uh, growth or decline of the Roman economy, uh, free markets, market integration, uh, government, um, fiscal controls, mainly in the form of taxation, but not only taxation, which affected the way in which um, the economy behaved, or economic institutions and economic individuals uh, behaved. And finally, whether uh, it makes sense uh, to talk about economic policy in ancient society, in the Roman uh, Empire in particular, in a culture in which, as you won't be surprised to know, uh, people very rarely actually thought about writing down on paper or papyrus or stone or wood uh, whether they actually had an economic policy and if they had one, what it would have consisted of. So modern anal anal analysts who are trying to look at these kind of things often are, of course, looking for the unspoken principles which drive uh, this particular system. Um, and you won't be surprised to know that um, modern historians who have looked at uh, ancient economies, both Greek and Roman, have uh, dragged uh, their subject into the 20th and 21st century uh, by taking on issues which, uh, of course, have a modern flavour and, of course, are driven by modern preoccupations. I'm certainly not going to try to analyse these in any detail, but I just gave you an example of um, a few buzzwords which you might find if you read uh, recent publications on the ancient economy embedded, of course, in, in, uh, is the question about whether the, economic, the economy is separable from other institutions, politically or social institutions, or whether they have to be regarded as a kind of seamless whole which are inextricably linked. 
Uh, connectivity as well. Uh, my colleagues uh, Nicholas uh, Purcell and Perrigan Horden have written about this, the question of how the Mediterranean world is connected up by social and econo economic institutions and activities. World systems analysis, more or less uh, uh, self-explanatory, um, uh, I think. New institutional economics, I certainly wouldn't uh, insult this audience by attempting to explain to you, who know much better than I do, uh, what new inst institutional economics are, but transaction costs and similar uh, phenomena are, of course, a large part of that. And then, of course, globalisation, everyone. So I did what I tell my students they must never do, go to Wikipedia and find out what it is you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I have become interested in this because I'm interested in trade and I'm interested in economic growth across the Roman world over this period of almost 500 years growth, or its opposite, uh, which I mentioned a few moments ago. And for, uh, for globalisation, of course, uh, when one is debating this with one's colleagues in, uh, uh, who are experts in ancient political, social or economic history, one thinks about whether globalisation can be dealt with simply in economic terms or whether it has to have uh, something of a wider definition. And I think the latter is certainly the case. But it is also true, if you think about that huge geographical spread which I just mentioned, and if you consider one or two of the examples that I'm going to be showing in the course of the next 15 minutes or so, uh, that the global connectivities, to use the term which my uh, colleague Nicholas Purcell has coined, um, that those global connectivities are certainly very, very important and certainly do uh, give, uh, very, uh, give, give a great deal of food for thought about what it is uh, which is affecting the way in which these different regions of the empire interact and the way in which they grow or decline either together, in parallel, or indeed in separate directions, which is also, of course, possible over this very huge span of time and space. Um, so that really, basically, uh, those uh, features, I think, have to be seen against the backdrop of what I think most uh, of my colleagues would agree uh, are the main characteristics of the period that we're talking about, uh, growth in the Roman economy or the Mediterranean economy, perhaps to be uh, more um, precise about it, down to about AD 200, and certainly from around 200 BC, which is the beginning of the acquisition of empire after the Hannibalic Wars, uh, the wars against Carthage, the acquisition of provinces and empire, down to around AD 200 it grows. Certainly around to, uh, to AD 150 there is an immense stability in the economic growth. What you mean by economic growth, of course, is a very good question because, again, I won't insult this audience by uh, attempting an explanation of the difference between aggregate growth and per capita growth, um, but it is an issue for us and, in particular, an issue of trying to figure out whether you can identify per capita growth in a huge society where you don't actually have an accurate idea of the number of capita you're talking about, i.e. the population of this uh, Mediterranean world in this period is something of a bone of contention, to put it mildly. Uh, and then decline from around AD 200 to 300. This is, of course, the famous uh, third century economic crisis, which uh, I think I, I hope that by the end of the 20 minutes or so uh, left to me, I will be able to at least cast some doubt on the characterization of this as a period of universal disaster and decline. I don't believe that it was. Um, and certainly after 300, there is, uh, which is a period I'm not going to talk about, uh, there is uh, some good evidence for 
recovery after that with regional variation. And certainly, uh, anybody who knows anything about the political and economic history of the Byzantine world or the late Roman and Byzantine world after uh, 300 will realize that the eastern part of the Mediterranean was really pretty pro prosperous in many, many areas for a good long time after AD 300. Uh, the structures uh, I wanted to talk about, um, uh, really just under three headings briefly, are those, and I'm not going to um, read, out the, uh, read out what's on the slides, which I hope you can see. I apologise for the untidiness of the fonts, um, which are all different. Um, the first thing, of course, is uh, the Roman coinage, which is central. And if there's one uh, key message which needs to be carried by this image of this silver denarius uh, in uh, the centre of any analysis of the Roman economy or indeed the ancient economy is that the coinage is not um, a fiduciary. It depends on the, the value of the coinage, depends on the quantity of precious metal and, uh, in the coins, and that is absolutely key to understanding how it behaves. So the denarius uh, is a silver coin, uh, the aureus, the gold coin, uh, is basic, the, the two bases of this essentially bimetallic uh, currency with um, uh, smaller bronze denominations but essentially based on gold and silver and this is a nice example of a coin of the Roman Emperor Trajan, a silver denarius and yet a, a, one of the bronze coins from the reign of Nero which as you can see carries a nice economic message because this is the one that uh, commemorates the building of the harbour at Ostia with its, um, the moles and the ships and, of course, the uh, implications about trade which this was supposed to support. So the currency is absolutely crucial. Um, and as I said before, it's um, uh, important that the denarius does come to dominate the whole of the Mediterranean world, but in the period before it dominated uh, completely, particularly in the East, it subsumed and... Uh, um, marshalled, if you like, all these various different minor currencies into, a, into a, a currency system which essentially worked as an integrated whole. And it is important, as I said, that it doesn't compete with uh, equipollent economies outside the empire. And uh, the, the whole point about this is that uh, adjustments to the coinage were made on the basis of metallic content, and that's really very important. It, the, another thing which one has to understand about this system is that, the, uh, despite what you may read in some books, this is not a world in which peasants wandered around exchanging sacks of grain for sacks of lentils. Uh, they did a bit of that, but basically the economy is monetized, and you have to think of it in uh, more or less modern terms in the sense in which you, money and the use of money as a medium of exchange is more or less ubiquitous, even in the, um, in the more uh, rural uh, areas. And that is true in an economy where... Uh, can be and is true in an economy where probably 80% of the economic activity that goes on is in fact agricultural. But of course you can't make an agricultural economy work without exchanging goods. And you can't exchange the goods without a medium of doing it. And that of course is what this is all about. Uh, so that is absolutely fundamental. And one of the examples which shows this um, is this um, illustrates the, a point that I want to make about this, is this uh, document, the uh, heading of which you don't really need to worry about, but the date uh, is important, and it is also important that this was a document which was written in Egypt, or found in Egypt, in uh, uh, about 90 miles south of Cairo, um, in the papyrus collection which resides... <clears throat> not very far from here in the Sackler Library now, the, you will find the original. And as you can see, this implies uh, quite a sophisticated banking system and the movement of goods and capital and coin 
uh, money uh, around um, considerable areas of the empire uh, by means of written communication of this sort. And this makes, a point that I, uh, makes several points that I want to uh, make very forcibly. First of all, banking uh, is common. Uh, and really quite sophisticated, and people do have means of moving money around. Banks don't quite function in the way in which they did in more mod do in more modern societies, uh, but they certainly take uh, um, deposits. Uh, they certainly uh, operate uh, credit systems. Uh, bankers, on the whole, do not make loans, but loans are ubiquitous and uh, very big business. Uh, many of the uh, great moneylenders, of course, were not bankers but private individuals. So banking, loans, debt, movement of money, credit, because these loans uh, were almost always made on security. We have one uh, example of um, somebody securing um, a, um, a, a monetary transaction in the Italian town of Puteoli, Pozzuoli, on the Bay of Naples against a, um, um, a crop, a barley crop, which was in fact stored in the granaries at Alexandria. So again, you can see there the complex interactions of goods and commodities on the basis of a, a coined economy is really uh, very important. Um, the extent to which um, investment and growth is identifiable in all of this is um, really quite difficult to calibrate and quite difficult to describe in all its complexity. But I think it is perhaps just worth making the point very simply, uh, which is made by the Roman orator Cicero in a speech which he made in the middle of the 60s BC when he was trying to persuade the Roman Senate to confer a special command on uh, his friend, colleague, uh, um, political colleague uh, Pompey, Pompey the Great, and Cicero said that there was a threat from Mithridates, the king of Pontus, to the Roman province of Asia, which was a very rich area, modern Turkey, of course, where the, um, the Roman, Senate Roman senators individually had a great financial stake in the ownership of property and in trading contacts, and Cicero said that if the, there was a military threat uh, to the province of Asia, it, uh, it, 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 uh, the tremors resounded right through the financial health of the whole of the city of Rome, in Rome itself and in Italy, everywhere. Uh, the investment was really quite considerable. Um, so investment and growth was certainly important, and so, uh, of course, were markets. And that, again, uh, is a point that I just wanted to make with one very simple example, which comes from uh, the uh, documents which, uh, from the northern uh, Roman military fort of Vindolanda up near Hadrian's Wall, on which I spent some part of the last 30-odd years working and deciphering some of these things. And this is just one example of uh, somebody writing to a slave of a Roman military officer and it is a perfect example of a free market economy and local commodities. Um, go out and see what price you can get. And this is, uh, you have to put this in context and realise that this was written uh, within 10 or 12 years of the first Roman occupation of this area in Northumberland. Uh, so this is really right out in the sticks on the fringes of uh, Roman domination. They're still uh, behaving uh, in what one might describe as an economically rational way. This is not something I would wish to go through in any detail, but it is just the easiest way that I could uh, find of demonstrating to you the principle of 
uh, a certain line of research into Roman economic history which attempts to show, not with complete success, but with a certain degree of success, that there is a, a way of tracking prices rationally over this time and space. And ex uh, um, explaining by the collection of what limited data we have for prices, that you can in fact explain uh, the price series that we have for Rome and for more distant areas by looking at the actual market prices tested and computing uh, the transaction costs involved which would affect the price of commodities imported to Rome, uh, which of course would rise the further you get from the centre of the market. So that's really just a, a simple um, uh, explanation of what is really quite a complex uh, task in attempting to um, analyse these prices and uh, as I say this is not uh, something that has been perhaps completely successful but there certainly is something in it and it certainly does imply uh, and I think rightly imply that one ought to find economically rational explanations of this kind of behaviour one ought to be able to find economically rational explanations of this kind of behaviour and this is really um, to uh, finish this um, uh, um, section about these financial structures this is really uh, underlying all this, a huge, huge volume of trade. This is just a very brief uh, account of a couple of items that we've got, three items that we've got from Rome's eastern trade. This is the trade going through the uh, eastern desert of Egypt to the, from the Nile Valley uh, to the Red Sea coast and then on towards India. And the first of these uh, pieces of evidence is a, um, a, a papyrus which... Um, uh, records um, a, contra a, in fact um, a contract of security for a ship's cargo and the value of that is six, six million, nearly seven million drachmas and it's only part of the, of the, uh, of the, uh, the actual cargo of the ship and of course this single ship is only one of many which will have been plying this trade route in the middle of the 2nd century AD. I'm not going to try to tell you what the value of the drachma or the denarius was at this stage, but that's a heck of a lot of money, and there was a heck of a lot of it moving around. And it is all underpinned by uh, a system of loans and credits and securities which is really pretty sophisticated. Uh, finally, in thinking about uh, structures, um, what about policy? Well, it, it, Roman emperors don't write down their economic policy, but I just brought a couple of items from which people have tried to derive uh, attitudes towards policy. This is a famous uh, passage about the Emperor Augustus attempting to stimulate uh, trade with Alexandria, Alexandria by giving people uh, money to spend on Alexandrian trade. And the other um, item uh, which I conclude this little section with is really pretty well known. It's the attempt of the Emperor Diocletian in AD 301 to uh, deal with price inflation uh, by imposing maximum prices uh, because, as he claimed, the poor old soldiers were suffering terribly from not being able to buy anything with their miserable little uh, pittances of pay. Um, well, that was disingenuous, and the policy certainly failed in this respect, but there's another important respect in which it didn't fail, which I will come on to at, uh, at the end. Um, the general outlines of uh, what um, I want to talk to, what I want to talk about in terms of the, uh, in the last ten minutes, in terms of what we're dealing with and how it behaved, is, of course, this question of how the Roman economy and business activity increased or decreased over the period that we're talking about. And a very um, crude and rapid survey uh, suggests that there are some um, particular features which underlie 
Roman economic, or economic growth in the Mediterranean world. One, of course, would be the Romans were very good at sending an army out there and beating the hell out of people and uh, then taking all their goods off them. So war indemnities and booty, at least in the early period of the uh, early part of the period I'm talking about, from 200 BC onwards, post-Hannibalic wars down through to the end of the Republic, to the death of Caesar, and then in the reign of Augustus down to AD 14. So roughly speaking, uh, the period from 200 to the middle of the first century was a period of acquisition of territory and acquisition of resources. War indemnities, boots are part of it. Exploitation of mines is another part of it. And of course, uh, it will be obvious to you that there is a very close link between exploitation of mines and what I said a few moments ago about the content of the coinage. Uh, the currency, the precious metal which they needed. New pro provinces, of course, brought new tax revenues, and then there is the growth of trade and commerce. And we know, for example, that in the second century BC, Rome, in particular, Roman trading contacts with the east through the islands of Delos and Rhodes and various other parts of the um, Aegean and uh, Anatolian world uh, increased enormously. And there is no doubt at all that that period from um, 180 or so uh, down to uh, the um, end of the first century and beyond was a period of enormous expansion in the Roman economy, uh, acquisition of goods um, and um, resources, of course, lay lying at the bottom of it. How do we measure the performance of all this? Well, this is not something I'm going to try to go to in any detail, uh, but there are various ways in which one can do it. Volume of coinage and velocity of circulation, although it's difficult to do, uh, increase in agricultural productivity. We do have some documents about that. Increases in manufactured goods, which can be assessed on the basis of archaeological evidence for goods traded. Volume of goods traded and the distances over which they are traded, locally, regionally, beyond the frontier. So we have overseas trade, we have local markets, and then we have regional trade. And one can actually track uh, the um, volume uh, for some commodities um, and for some regions, the volume of goods and the uh, rise or, or growth and decline in um, activity of that sort. Uh, population increase and urbanisation is another feature which, of course, underpins what appears to be a growing and burgeoning economy. And, uh, of course, as I said earlier, standards of living and per capita income, if we could do it, would tell us quite a lot about the economic performance. Well, uh, there were, of course, crises, and I thought I would uh, just um, try to show you some evidence for one or two of these and a little bit of um, detail about what they did with them. There was a crisis, certainly, after this huge period of growth in the 70s BC, um, but we don't really know much about how they dealt with it, except that they seem to have come through it all right. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a famous uh, occasion... Uh, on which Caesar, after the civil war of 48 BC, when evidently some of his senatorial friends were suffering from debt, debt was quite a common problem in Rome. And I think, and come on with it is uh, often thought uh, that debt is a particular problem of the poor. Uh, I never believed this. Debt is a problem of the rich. You don't lend money to people unless you think they can repay it. And I think the Roman aristocrats were no. Uh, uh, exceptions to this. So when the Romans talk about cancellation of debts, they're not trying to benefit the plebs. They're trying to make sure that their fellow aristocrats don't suffer too heavily from interest rates of the level which uh, uh, the famous Brutus, the assassin of Caesar, um, imposed at, uh, I think it was 48% per annum on some people to whom he, uh, as a good uh, philosopher, 
was uh, exacting from the, uh, the people in Cyprus who he was governing at the time. Uh, so what Caesar actually did was, um, by issuing an edict after the Civil War, saying that debts contracted pre-war were to be valued at pre-war prices and not post-war prices, and that was a kind of sophisticated piece of economic thinking. Even more so, uh, the money lenders in 33 AD began to attempt to um, call in their debts. There was a crisis of confidence, and what happened, of course, was that uh, those who had borrowed from the money lenders were put under severe pressure and panicked and uh, found themselves having to sell their assets in order to pay off their debts. Um, that, of course, meant a drop in the price of land, which is where most of their wealth was held in, in the security of landed property. And this way was uh, exactly what happened. The emperor simply, um, well, quantitative easing is a, a, subject, a term which would not be familiar to the historian Tacitus, but uh, he described it there perfectly. Tiberius, the emperor, simply put a lot more money into circulation, and that uh, solved the problem. Um, more um, uh, systemic, of course, was the supposed series of crises through the 3rd century AD when the Roman coinage did lose its value and there was a series of de debasements. And this, of course, is how uh, typically how uh, the Roman currency behaved uh, or the, those who were um, uh, regulating the Roman currency behaved in response to shortage of money. Uh, they simply eked it out more and reduced the amount of silver in the coin in the coin, uh, debased it, so you get more denarii to your pound of silver. In the case of the gold coinage, they never actually debased it, but they reduced the weight. So the areas, the gold areas remained pure, but it actually was reduced in weight. So you're simply stretching your metal resources further. Uh, again, I won't insult this audience by telling, trying to tell you what effect that might have on the confidence of the uh, consumers. Uh, but this uh, particular document, which comes from AD 260, which is right at the core of the period when all this was happening, has actually been interpreted as uh, a piece of evidence of complete loss of confidence in the Roman currency. I don't think it actually is that. I think there are various other reasons why they wanted them to continue to retain coinage. It's often, it's often said that it is the government refusing to accept its own coin, and therefore driving uh, economic behaviour back to barter and to exchanging power. I don't think that's true at all. And there's no evidence that that actually happened. But it clearly is an attempt to deal with this problem of constant uh, debasement, constant and gradual debasement of the coinage and the reduction of the gold and silver content. What actually happened was that in, uh, first of all, in AD 274, not too long after this, uh, there, were, there was an attempt at remonetization. Uh, I think that's what they did. Uh, they remonetized the, uh, remonetized and redefined the, um, the, the denominations. That, of course, does lead to inflation. Uh, but um, the argument, of course, is whether it's real inflation or whether it's simply uh, re-tariffing type inflation, in other words, an increase in the face value of the coinage, uh, which doesn't actually um, cause, uh, well, doesn't cause price rises of the volume that the re-tariffing would suggest in itself. It does, of course, like, I suppose, like the, ex the, the change from... Uh, um, changeover into, um, into the European uh, economic into the euro might affect prices in uh, it's not to the extent that the remonetization might suggest. So all of these things which might be indicators of decline then may kick in in reference to the analysis of what was happening in the later 3rd century BC, uh, AD in this period of decline. Can we see remonetization? Yes. Can we see inflation? Well not perhaps of the traditional kind that was uh, supposed. 
Can we see the collapse of the tax system? Actually, not entirely. They certainly still continue to collect taxes, but they have to revamp the system 30 years later. Um, civic finances and urban prosperity, well, it's patchy, uh, but um, some evidence that it's not universal decline. Um, desertion agricultural land and villages, some again, but probably not universal. Shrinkage of population, a certain amount in some areas, but certainly in the east, uh, appears to be stable and even in some areas increasing. Regional differences, certainly yes. And changes in individual patterns of economic behaviour. Well, I spent some time looking at the documents uh, which record economic behaviour of the sort which I showed you a few moments ago over this period. And it's actually quite hard to see that in this period of remonetisation, uh, people did actually change their behavioural patterns very much. Well, uh, that's a really kind of whistle-stop tour. Um, and it does, but I hope it does indicate some of the uh, features, quite sophisticated features of the Roman economic um, conglomerate, if that's perhaps the right word, uh, which um, uh, characterised uh, behaviour in this period. I think uh, if there are lessons to be drawn from it, uh, as I said, uh, uh, indicated at the beginning, I don't think there are lessons of a very simplistic kind, which is to say, because the Emperor Diocletian attempted to impose maximum prices, that's what we should do. In fact, as I said, uh, that um, policy of his uh, certainly failed. Um, but we can, I think, um, even if we reject the idea of global financial catastrophe, think about the ways in which a monetary economy of this sort behaves, even if it's different from monetary economies of the present. Uh, we can think about the mode and intensity of government regulation and direct participation. One of the things that the government did in this period was to withdraw from direct control of uh, financial money-making institutions insofar as it had existed. That's to say, for example, from direct ownership of land. Uh, so public land and government land was still private ownership, uh, for example. Um, there were certainly attempts at coherent regulation of the economy by monetization, and in fact I would argue that that's uh, the attempt of Diocletian to impose maximum prices was much, much less successful than another attempt which he made at the same time again to re-regulate the currency, which does appear to have been successful, and to re-tariff the coinage. Uh, patterns of routine economic behaviour, I think, are what we have to look at, and then also, of course, does all of this affect uh, changes in the patterns of distribution of wealth, and I think probably it did. Um, the the, the uh, gap between the wealthy and the poor became greater. There certainly is some evidence for recovery after AD 300, and in fact Diocletian's uh, re-tariffing of the coinage re-established the coinage on the basis of the gold coinage, which had become weaker and weaker progressively through the 3rd century AD. The real question which we don't know the answer to is... And that is the point at which I'm going to end, uh, except to acknowledge the fact that this um, uh, work comes out of the Roman Economy Project, which I'm uh, running with my friend and colleague Andrew Wilson, and there is the URL or the webpage if anybody is interested. I suppose if there is one simple lesson to be drawn from all of this for modern economists, it's that, well, whatever uh, we may do now, uh, the Roman answer to it was to get out there and dig. <laughs> Thank you. So I'm going to bring you very much back to the present. My apologies to classicists. In fact, it feels very funny to be 
uh, the person who teaches in the business school teaches business history, who's going to be so presentist, actually, at some level. Um, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about um, a particular moment um, uh, that seems very parallel at the moment. And actually, um, it's so parallel that I understand uh, that you may well have seen uh, the other person, one of the other people who's working on this, uh, Frank Partnoy, was recently uh, in America on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart talking about this same, the same incident. Um, so it's very much, uh, there are a lot of people talking about, about this. The context is um, actually about uh, Ivar Kruger, um, the very famous match king, who was um, in the 20th century, now that we're in the 21st century, in the 20th century, was the, the, great, uh, the greatest swindler of the century. And I want to tell you about this because it's really the story of Enron and um, Bernie Madoff wrapped into one, um, given our current crisis. So this is the man, uh, and he was, as I say, a maker of matches who uh, was Swedish. And he was, uh, at the time, he was thought to be, in the 20s, the richest man in the world. And uh, all through this, you're going to be seeing pictures of matchbook covers, because I just can't help myself. His matches were distributed all across the world, and they're these wonderful uh, covers that he had for domestic markets. And so this one, obviously, is, they always said manufactured in Sweden, but they had all sorts of different covers for different markets. So his empire was global, and it stretched across the world. It was, in fact, as I say, it was, it was said to be the, the world's largest uh, company at the time. Certainly securities were more, more widely held than anybody. But it began and ended in Sweden, um, in the center of Sweden, actually, because um, there was where the, uh, the forests were located and where the, factory, the factories that produced these matchsticks were. And, in fact, uh, when I go to do research on this, uh, you find yourself going... Uh, to the center of Sweden, to uh, a town called Vadsna, where you um, go to a castle which has a moat around it, and you get to go into the archives um, of this company, which um, are quite overwhelming because they're more than three kilometers long. Um, the good news is that the majority of that is in Swedish, which I can't read. So uh, I only have to deal with a small amount of that material. Um, but because he was so global, that, that small amount of material is quite considerable and is in English, French, German, and so forth. So here's a picture of this guy again. Um, this is, uh, I, I particularly like the idea that he would have had this done for himself. It's, it's both kind of interesting and tasteless at the same time. I particularly like the fact that it's bordered by matches. You notice uh, that's, a, that's a frame style I never would have thought of myself. Um, he's holding in his hands, it's always interesting to look at the iconography of a self-portrait. And in this, in this portrait, which he's had commissioned, he's holding basically the basis of his prosperity in his two hands. In one hand, he has the matches, the match, you know, the actual safety matches. And on the other hand, he has a contract. And that was the basis of his wealth. What he had was monopolies in every single, in many countries. And he had negotiated those monopolies on a national basis with governments around the world. And so whether that be, you know, in Africa, an Eastern, uh, Eastern trading company, or whether this be in the case of the Lama in Peru, he had different uh, monopolies in each country. Now, what were those monopolies about? Well, what he do, would do is he would go to a, company, to a country and he would say to the head of that country, I will give you a very large loan. And that loan could be on the order of up to $50 million in gold in the 1920s. This was, these were large sums. These were loans of the order that, say, a J.P. Morgan might have made. And, in fact, he was competing against the Morgans in terms of giving them loans. The Morgans would give you a loan and would actually – they would – they wouldn't, in effect, demand something in return except the repayment of that loan over time. He would say, I'll give you a very low loan, low interest rate loan, 
but in return, I want to have the monopoly on matches in your country. And as soon as you had signed that agreement with him, uh, you would then, he would then proceed, basically, to go back to Wall Street, back, back to the United States, where his capital markets were, and he would say to them, I've just got this agreement for, say, a $50 million loan with Germany, and I need to have that money. I need to bring that back to Germany. And so the basis of my repayment, you're going to get your money back because, after all, it's Germany lending this. The good news about this is it's a monopoly. I'm going to get all this money from, back from matches. And, um, and also, by the way, it's, you know, it's backed by the German government. So this is a very good deal. And, the, uh, and, and governments believe, you know, people who were investors believed this, right? They said, this man's a genius. He's, he's brought us, what is in fact, a fantastic loan. His, uh, his rates of return were something on the order of 10 to 12%. And when people were just concerned with dividends, they said, this is great, right? I mean, how, how can you do, go wrong? You're investing with the richest man in the world. You're buying a bond that's based out of Germany. It's 50 years or so. It's based against a monopoly. I mean, you know, and it's matches. I mean, it's not like this is a product that's going to go out of use, right? It's going to be something that's going to last forever. So these monopolies would then, in turn, be the stock certificates that would be out there. And these stock certificates were widely, I mean, the, the bond certificates and stock certificates were widely traded. In fact, they were the most widely traded securities in the world, as I said. So... Along the way, he ended up with, with monopolies in 17 countries by the early 1930s, and in the process, it lent them hundreds of millions of dollars. The argument, in fact, many people say that he was, after World War I, in effect, the person who brought prosperity back to Europe because he, he brought back all these loans to France and to Germany and so forth. Um, and so he was, he was a genius, right? This was a man who, in 1929, in October of 1929, when all had crashed... When everything had gone wrong, he was featured on the cover of Time magazine because he was the one person who had withstood the crash, the one person who hadn't been affected by it, the one person who you could trust. You knew there's going to be a bad side of the story, though, right? <laughs> you know this can't go on. Well, what's even best about this is there's sort of echoes of it. They kind of precede it, right? So the New Yorker in 1929 in August, before this all happens, creates a cartoon which I love, which is clearly modeled on Kruger. In fact, he was, he was, uh, uh, he was a, um, a silent investor in Diamond Match Company in the United States. And they, they describe it as an industrial crisis. And, and of course, uh, captured the, because you can't read that so well down below, it says, a director of the Diamond Match Company absentmindedly lights his cigar with an automatic light, lighter. And if you see in the middle, that's that man, and everybody's going, oh! that was a mistake, and they're handing him his hat and telling him to leave the room. Okay, but it was, the industrial crisis to come was far worse. So, in, in the early 30s, as he was expanding this empire, and by the way, we're going to start using terms like Ponzi scheme, and I want you to know that in the 1930s, they weren't called Ponzi schemes, they were called Kruger schemes. Okay? <laughs> Ponzi's just a better, right? Kruger doesn't sound so good. Ponzi's a really good word. But anyway, um, this, th as, this, as this scheme expanded, he needed more and more and more territory. And so what he did in, in Sweden was he purchased a small telecommunications firm. Um, you may have heard it's called Ericsson. Okay, anyway, so this firm called Ericsson that he'd purchased, he had the idea he was going to get monopolies on telephones all around the world, right? He was going to, this was, so not just matches, but telephones. And he was going to go from country to country. Well, this really annoyed the Morgans. The problem was the Morgans had an interest in IT, ITT, which was the International Telephone and Telegraph, which was the rival. And they said, 
look, you really have to look into this man to the other bankers who are out there. We think there's something wrong. I mean, he's just, you've got to control him. You've got to stop him. And as they looked into this, they started saying, by the way, can we actually see some of those bonds that you're lending against, that you're borrowing against? And he said, oh, um, I think they're in my other country. Let me go back there. So there was this sort of international chase as he went from America to France to Germany to Sweden, back to America. To, and, and they finally caught up with him. They were about to catch up with him in Paris when he decided to kill himself. Good ending, right? So he kills himself. He commits suicide. Everybody arrives and they say, oh, my God, he's committed suicide. Uh, I wonder what the, country, what the company's like at this point. Within days, the word comes out, it's a disaster. It's a fraud. It, it, he, his entire financial empire is gone. It doesn't exist. Right? His financial advisors are inept. Not good. Okay? The scale of this was so large that it was larger than the, than the entire economy of Sweden. Right? The, the wonderful moment that I remember in reading some of these records was as the, there were 250 subsidiary companies, right? There are 17 different nations. As they're trying to sort this out, there's a point at which different bankruptcy advisors start sending each other different bills, right? So you owe me. And one guy describes getting a bill for $100 million, You know, like, okay, so I owe $100 million. No, wait a second. You owe me $100 million, right? I mean, these, the scale is not good, right? Okay, so the immediate response, of course of this is that everybody starts an investigation, particularly the Americans. They like investigations. Um, and they call, them, they call them in front. They call them in front of, the, of, of Congress. They call all of these people who were, who were still alive, and they say, what were you doing? And they say, I, I don't know. It's all in Swedish. I don't read Swedish. <laughs> it's all really complicated. And they say, well, but like, for instance, did you ever get, you, what about the audited financial statements? And they said, yeah, well, he knew so much. I mean, we never really needed those because whenever we asked him a question, he just knew the numbers. It was amazing. Um, not good, right? So the, the result was, in the early 30s, that the U.S. government created what's now called the Securities and Exchange Commission, resulting from these hearings, and they required the, the, they made the requirement that companies must file audited statements. So this is what we now understand as the basis for the entire regulatory system in the United States was the response to Kruger's bankruptcy. Well, can we come up with any sort of contemporary, relevant comparisons? Yeah, I think so. How about Jeff Skilling and Bernie Madoff? Um, you know, both, in effect, had to face, their, or their advisors had to face Congress. Um, in the case of Enron, what they did was they responded by pressing something called Sarbanes-Oxley, which basically reinscribed what happened in the 30s. And in the case of Bernie Madoff, well, it's a whole, it's, it's ripping apart the SEC and saying, where were you in regulating this? Why didn't you get decent financial statements from this person who supposedly ran a securities firm, right? So how did we not know what was going on? Okay, but it's really nice to draw parallels. It's sort of interesting. But so big deal, right? It's happened before, it'll happen again, maybe it'll happen a third time, right? So what can we learn? Well, let me see if I can come up with some other things that we can learn from this, which are sort of interesting in retrospect. 
By the way, here's a picture. There were all these cartoons of him. He was so important that they would draw regular cartoons, and they were sort of they were weird. They were mid 20th century cartoons. This one is of, of him leading an army of Natchez to conquer the world, with the with the ghost of the of the of the Swedish uh, king looking on afterwards. I, I still don't really understand what's going on there, but anyway. Okay, so uh, from Young Frankenstein, right? Um, where were the gatekeepers in this? Where were the professionals who were supposed to look after, who were supposed to guard this? Um, why did we trust, right, echoing what, um, what Alan Morrison was saying earlier, why did we believe in the reputation of these people, of, of, of Skilling, of Madoff, of Kruger? What were we, you know, what were we doing, right? Well, the interesting thing is that um, this was very much part of what Kruger was about. He was constantly emailing in the contemporary sense. He was sending telegrams all over the world. The fascinating thing is to see book after book of telegram. And when he was in Germany, he would say correspond in English or French. When he was in France, he would correspond in German. You can see he was constantly changing. And sometimes he would encode them, right? So he was constantly. And he would send these, these telegrams when he was on a boat. So he'd be constantly sending. He was, he was Mr. Wired in the contemporary sense, right? And he was, he was, he was emailing his advisors both to get information from them and also to pump them with information. They became desperate for all the information and the knowledge that he provided about the global economy. This is a period when they couldn't quite understand what's going on, and he seemed to know everything. So he brought up both the reputation of, of his own reputation by affiliating with the right sort of people, but he also helped them to drive up their reputation. It became mutual dependent along the way. Um, so this is this, this dependence. And what I think in the last one, um, the, it's hard for you to see these, but this one is where the president of Columbia, uh, the country, right, not the, not the university, um, has asked National Citibank or Citibank, right, to get word to you that it's prepared to reopen discussions about the business of perhaps pursuing um, a monopoly. Right? So this is the kind of company he kept, and this is coming by way of his financial advisors um, in New York. Um, and here are more of these sorts of things. Again, word, word from London that Rothschilds uh, is sending some proposals on to you, right? So there's this constant sort of, he's part of the financial markets, but very much wired into that. In particular, he was part of a very important investment bank that Alan didn't mention because it's gone, right? It's a bank that we don't know about anymore. It's called Lee Higginson. And when he, what he did was he very carefully chose, in effect, a bank that wasn't cutting edge, that was, in fact, had enormous reputational capital, but, what, but had gone, in effect, the wrong way. They, had, they, had, they were declining. And he, he chose, in effect, he also chose, they, put him, they aligned him with the, with, the, with the one partner who was young and who was not blue-blooded and who was sort of, who was the, the young, charismatic person, and they put the two of them together to sort of bring up the fortunes of this bank. And how do we know that this bank was important? Well, when Alan was talking about the floating of different companies, can I point to three companies that they helped to float? General Motors, General Electric, and AT&T. Now, I understand these, these companies aren't so important anymore. In fact, they're having some serious problems. But at the time, they were rather important, right? This is a Boston-based elite bank that had been responsible for the flotation of all of these three companies. In fact, they made a terrible decision in 1928. They built this incredibly beautiful big building right opposite to the New York Stock Exchange. So if you stand with the New York Stock Exchange to your back and you look across, you'll see 
their headquarters, which is far larger than Morgan's headquarters, for example. Um, it's now a school. <laughs> they lost this by the early 30s. Um, they just didn't survive. And in fact, what's interesting about it is to see the testimony from the partners, and this is the partner, Don Durant, who is that young, aggressive partner I described, who has to swear out a statement in 1936 explaining that basically he's lost all this money. He's been destroyed, right? So the reputational cost to them from this, they built themselves up on the back of, of Kruger. They lost everything on the back of Kruger. That was terrible, right? But somebody profits. So who profits? Well, let me tell you who profits. The lawyers. <laughs> um, the corporate lawyers and accountants made out incredibly well. And so the top, the, 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 the top lawyers who were called into this, and remember, there were 250 subsidiaries, all of which had to be, had to be dealt with in bankruptcy cases, all of which had to, dra had to drag out over years. Um, in this case, this was just one of the, of the primary American uh, bankruptcy cases. By the time they were finished in, in 1939, they had half a million in fees that came out of this. That was good money in 1939. In fact, when the lawyer was brought onto the case, he got all these fantastic, uh, there's a folder of all, the f of all the cards he got, like, congratulations. And he's going, oh, thank you. It's really, I don't think I'll enjoy this at all. And people are going, no, it's 1934. This is good money, man. Don't turn it down. Be happy. You know, it may not seem like a lot, but it's a good thing. Um, in fact, at the end, they're just sort of saying to themselves, now, exactly how much can we ask the bankruptcy courts for? You know, and, the, and, the, and the Swedish are saying, oh, that's far too much money to give to them. Meanwhile, they've paid over a million dollars in fees to their main uh, people. So you know, it was incredibly lucrative, both for the lawyers and also for the accountants. So what we know is that some people lose, some people win. It's good to be the right kind of professional at the moment. Think... think um, Think going into accounting, but forensic accounting. Really good at the moment, okay? Okay, what else about these professionals? What else, who else, what else did they get from this? Well, one of the things that came from this, and we know in effect, in a broader sense, about the, the, the reputational effect that, that came out of the 30s, was that people distrusted corporations. But at a more specific level, you can imagine that professionals had a particular gripe with the sort of people that they had been dealing with, with Kruger. Um, and let me give you two examples of two professionals who would go on to have quite an important impact, but who, in effect, cut their teeth on Kruger. The first is John Foster Dulles, right, who, if you've ever th flown through Washington, D.C. In, in America, you know this name because you've gone through Dulles Airport. John Foster Dulles would go on to become Secretary of State in the United States after World War II. But before that time, in the 30s, he was a young corporate lawyer at Sullivan and Cromwell. And what he was, his first international finance job was to pour over Kruger's affairs and to basically try to solve this, try to pull this, reconcile this, bring this together. The other person is Jean Monnet, who created the European Union, who was a young banker who was assigned to this case from the European side. Both of them would spend an enormous amount of time trying to pull, trying to resuscitate Kruger's empire. And what's interesting, actually, is that to this day, Swedish match survives. If you go into a store and ask for a box of matches, you'll most likely buy Swedish matches. They survive as a company. The company itself was good. And in fact, when the bankruptcy lawyers went in, they were able to resuscitate quite a lot of money from the company. They pulled out, in the end, 60, 70, 80 percent of what, so it's not like, it, it doesn't seem like it's Madoff. Madoff, you know, there's going to be nothing that comes from Madoff from what we can figure out. But in fact, with Kruger, it was, it was a scheme, but it, was, it, was, it bordered on being something that was possible. 
right? You know, there was still some value in it. But these guys, what they didn't like about it was something they saw as corruption that was inherent in that, and that was the monopoly part. What they were dealing with was a series of monopolies all over the world, and they didn't like that corrupt part of that. And so what they did was they worked for the rest of their careers to destroy monopoly. So the most recent case that we've had, Intel, right, a, a, a case in Europe in which Intel was fined more than a, a billion euro, I think it was, um, was was set against Intel and was a result, really, of what Monet and Dulles were trying to do post-war. So there was a legacy of anti-monopoly that came from this that I don't think people have recognized before. So I have really, in effect, three legacies I'd like to suggest about this that came from Kruger. The first is securities regulation. The first is the entire modern apparatus of securities regulation, which came out of this event. So we probably should expect that these series of events most recently, and we've already seen, that they've meant a, a severe and, and long-lasting recalibration of securities regulation. The second is that Kruger was really one of the earliest factors in, in, global, in globalized security markets. And so we can, we can expect that actually where we, where we see failures like this, it may not well be that we're going to see a decline in globalization. Right? Kruger actually didn't, he didn't stop things from happening. He was, he was at the cutting edge of it. He may have failed, but he didn't necessarily take down globalization with it. But what we may see, and I'm not pointing to anti-monopolism as being what we may see, but we may see a kind of cynical view of society and of companies that comes out of the very people who are going to do work from now on on the remnants of these companies. Those people who are going to go into it, who deal with Madoff or deal with Enron or deal with any of these, of these failed situations, may come out of it very changed for the rest of their lives, thinking that these organizations are not necessarily for good. And they may spend a lot of their time trying to impose regulatory standards or different kind of standards on organizations, a, a different philosophical view from it, in effect, a generational view that we might expect. And actually, the greatest thing that actually came from it is some fantastic matchbook covers. I, I now want to become a collector of matchbook covers because they're really terrific. Okay, that's my story about a small segment of the history of white-collar crime. I'm glad during discussion to talk about wider, uh, ex more extensive examples, but I thought one case study might be kind of fun. Fantastic, Chris. We've gone a bit over time, so I think we're going to have to uh, axe the questions and answers. Uh, but the, uh, the speakers will be joining us for a drink afterwards, so let's have the questions there. Just before you move, before you move, uh, I'd like to thank our speakers tremendously for a, a fantastic tour de force uh, on their very varied subjects. I think we're really lucky to have people like this in Oxford to address us. Of the 15 of this series we've uh, done, We've never had a single academic who said he's unable or unwilling to do it. So I think that's a real tribute to uh, the academic community. This series, as you probably know, those who have been to previous ones, is a, a joint venture between the Regional Liaison Office, which I head up, and the uh, Centre for Enterprise and Innovation, which is headed up by Fiona Reid in, in the business school. I particularly want to thank the various people who've helped uh, make tonight a success. Uh, that is Dorothea... Jenny and Emily. So can we have a round of thanks for Dorothea, Emily and Jenny. <laughs> Finally, the next one in the series is on June the 1st on cancer research, a very different subject but a very important one. And for those of you who are interested in the, the banking world, Marcus Agius, the uh, chairman of Barclays Bank, is actually going to be speaking here on Tuesday of next week. 
So thank you very much, everyone, for coming. And a final thank you for our speakers.